Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. We've got two franchises with different strategies that we'll talk about on today's show and a state that is embracing or perhaps embracing raw milk. But we begin with Taco Bell and their latest offer. We don't know quite yet whether it's an LTO or limited time offer or whether it will be a permanent item on their menu. But they're currently having a national rollout of their shellless chicken chalupa that had been in various testing stages for nearly two years. If you've been in or around the food industry, chances are good that you've probably seen something about this chicken chalupa. And now it's confirmed that it's coming out for a nationwide release soon. This is a very interesting food innovation by Taco Bell. The price point is going to be $2.99, and Trent, as you alluded to, very soon. It's coming out January 26th. It is going to be a national rollout to all 7,000 restaurant locations nationwide. And this is an interesting thing for Taco Bell because you don't see a lot of mainstream restaurants try this type of thing out. So this truly is a food innovation. And if you go to Taco Bell's website, tacobell.com, it is actually under their food innovation page so that you can see that they're extremely proud of this chicken chalupa. And they even have a national social media campaign right now, hashtag naked chicken chalupa. So they're really hoping this takes off. But we We should say that they did try this out in a couple different markets before this national rollout was announced. Back in 2015 in California, they had a rollout for this naked chicken chalupa. And then in Kansas City earlier in 2016, so last year and then the year prior, they were having a couple pilot markets and it seemed as though Very good sales were coming by way of this chicken chalupa, but this is the embodiment of their overall strategy. We talk a lot of times about Taco Bell and how they're really focused on limited time offerings and these food innovations. This is sort of their niche, and they really have been able to embrace it on social media as well. So I am curious to see how the national response comes from this rollout. It certainly appears as though when you look at the releases coming from Yum! Brands and Taco Bell that they don't want this to be an LTO. They want this to be a permanent menu item. Their chief marketing officer, Marissa Thalberg, said in a statement that they're confident once their fans get a taste of this Naked Chicken Chalupa, they're going to come back, and they want it to follow in the footsteps of the Doritos Locos Taco and the Quesalupa. Those were permanent menu fixtures after initially being released. But one of the more interesting things I found when you look back five years ago when they released their Doritos Locos Taco... Unlike with other trends that we're seeing lately in the QSR industry where these limited time offers or innovative offers are spurring same store sales growth, the Doritos Locos Taco didn't really have that effect for the restaurant or its franchisees. You see most quarterly same store sales growth around the 1% to 2% range at that time for Taco Bell over the previous year when they hadn't had the Doritos Locos Taco. I think we think about the Doritos Locos Taco as a true innovation in the fast food field, and they had talked about how it's disrupting the QSR industry, and they want this 
to take that same space over from the Doritos Locos Taco. But time, again, will tell as to how well this will be received in the long term. It is interesting to note that another Yum! Brands brand in KFC had introduced something in the same vein when they introduced their double-down chicken sandwich, which were two fried chicken breasts that basically sandwiched together some bacon and some cheese, where the actual chicken was essentially serving as the bun of the sandwich. Sandwich. Here we have the chicken, instead of serving as the bun, serving as the shell for this chalupa. Inside the chalupa, it'll come with shredded lettuce, diced ripe tomatoes, cheddar cheese, and a creamy avocado ranch sauce that they've used on other limited-time offerings, as well as some permanent menu items. We've seen it used in some gorditas and chalupas in the past. So not necessarily new for them, but they are continuing to try and place themselves in into that space where avocados have become increasingly popular and so they're finding ways to incorporate them into this particular product. As you mentioned, it'll hit U.S. locations on January 26th and I'm anxious to see based on their next quarterly report after this rollout whether or not they see the same same store sales bump as what Burger King saw last year with their innovations in the QSR industry. Yeah, and as for Taco Bell as a whole, you've really seen a company that has withstood what people have called a restaurant recession. So you see same-store sales weren't in negative in 2016, so this is a positive sign for the company, but they hope to continue that momentum on through 2017, and rollouts like this certainly will help the bottom line of the company. Well, we move on from Taco Bell to the pizza industry. We're talking about Papa Murphy's, which actually announced recently that they're coming into the pizza business with a little different strategy in 2017. And then also last week, they released their preliminary fourth quarter earnings and full year results for fiscal 2016. So we're going to be talking about these attempts to boost their pizza business as they have failed to come in with a solid same store sales position in 2016. But first, we do look at the preliminary results for their fourth quarter and their full year outlook. Look, it's not looking great as the company reaches maturation. We see that the company estimates total revenue for the quarter coming in around $35.5 million for the fourth quarter and $126.9 million for the full year 2016. And we also see the same store sales that I alluded to coming in at a very bad number, decreasing 7.8% for the quarter. And for the full year, Papa Murphy's will see same store sales decrease 5.2%. So these are horrible numbers, especially considering they are in a, an industry that really has seen some success as of late. We're saying that pizza purchases overall are up in the QSR industry. But again, Papa Murphy's is a different player in the space. These take-home pizzas aren't necessarily directly competing with the likes of the more popular QSRs in Papa John's and Domino's Pizza. But system-wide, they did open 27 new locations for the quarter, and they did bring up development in the full year 2016 to 104 new locations. And this actually compares to 99 new locations or new openings in 2015. So you can see that they still have some growth as far as their store base is concerned. But where they're failing is bringing in new customers and keeping the ones they already have. 
You're absolutely right. And overall, this isn't a sustainable business model where you're driving top-line revenue growth now for the second consecutive fourth quarter on the back of new store development. That can only last so long. And when you run out of space in which to expand in the U.S., they mentioned the southeastern United States in their overall yearly statement, that eventually your top-line revenue will begin to shrink when you run out of places to expand and you run out of willing franchisees who no doubt are looking at these comparable store sales and perhaps scratching their head a little bit. And it's worth noting that it's not like they're going against great comps in the fourth quarter of 2015. If you go back to the fourth quarter of 2015 for Papa Murphy's, you saw revenue did increase by 19.5% compared to the previous year's fourth quarter, but as in this year's fourth quarter, comp store sales decreased by 3.1% in last year's fourth quarter, including both decreases at franchisee-owned stores and company-owned stores. And what's rare is, in the QSR industry at least, you see a larger decrease at the franchisee-owned stores than you see at the company-owned stores. Most companies, it seems to have been the other way around, at least in recent quarters. So good news is that they are still on the positive side of the ledger as far as income is concerned. And this is the second straight fourth quarter that they've seen positive income. But they have to develop a strategy to make them stand out. Their concept, the take-and-bake concept, if you're not familiar with Papa Murphy's, what happens is you go into a Papa Murphy's, you get a pizza that's basically made for you, but it's not cooked. It's essentially the best way to put it would be refrigerated, and then you bake it yourself at home. However, now there are so many players in the home cooking space that it's going to be difficult for Papa Murphy's to continue their growth plan just based on on their formatting alone. One of the things we talked about before we came on air today was the fact that you look at HelloFresh and Blue Apron, these companies that are making it in vogue to cook foods at home. They will send you portioned amounts of certain types of food so you can make it at home. This really isn't too far away from what Papa Murphy's does, but it expands the horizon of people who wish to do this above and beyond pizza, which could be dangerous for Papa Murphy's. Additionally, Papa Murphy's differentiator used to be price. It used to be that you could go to a Papa Murphy's, purchase a pizza that hadn't been baked yet, and get it at a lower price point than some of the other QSR chains. As you mentioned, Papa John's, Domino's, or Pizza Hut. Well, Little Caesars started to erode into this business model when they began to introduce the hot and ready pizzas. And now that you have app-based ordering from just about every other pizza QSR out there, the difference between Papa Murphy's and ordering something at, say, a Domino's or a Pizza Hut or a Papa John's has been lessened because you can order by app and pick it up many times by the time you get to the store. So you can order ahead of time. It doesn't require a phone call or anything like that. And that's something that Papa Murphy's mentioned they want to build out is their e-commerce sales and their app-based sales. But again, they're behind the eight ball in this category because all the other pizza QSRs just about got a head start on them. And what's more is, and this is kind of a head scratcher for me, they said in their yearly report that they're not really planning on doing much digital marketing or online marketing or app-based marketing, and instead they're going with traditional marketing channels. It seems to me to be reasonable to meet people where they're at, which more and more nowadays is in a digital format. 
This really is an interesting story, and I've been telling you for quite some time, this is a company I've wanted to talk about on the Food Focus podcast for a number of reasons. One is their competitive dynamic, and you alluded to a lot of really good points here, Trent, and that they are competing against the hot and ready space with the likes of Little Caesars, and some pizza locations also have hot and ready type situations in their restaurants, but then also they're competing with the frozen pizza industry inside grocery stores, and we all know the price stagnation inside grocery stores has really bolstered the foot traffic as of late. In 2016, you see the increase in overall numbers of frozen pizzas that are sold inside grocery stores. And then you also have the likes of Blue Apron, which are really trying to hype the idea that people should be making food inside their home. They'll have all the ingredients ready for you. So it's the same kind of thing that Papa Murphy's has been doing and been promoting for quite some time. So really, they have three competitive pressures And that, again, doesn't include the conventional pizza dynamic that is brought in from the likes of Domino's and Papa John's. But the idea that they really are going to be spending more money, more capital infusion into the online and mobile payment system is a good thing. The only thing that is worrisome, Trent, is what you mentioned in that they really don't seem too firm on the idea that they should be promoting it, at least online. But they did mention a lot of television advertisement campaigns. And then also during their investor presentation, they said they will be increasing the idea that they should have ingredient innovation, which really means that they're going to be having new product offerings. They've actually taken two years off of new product offerings. It was back in 2015 is when they had their latest product innovation. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for Papa Murphy's going forward. But is it too little too late? Because again, those consistent customers, those customers that were coming in to Papa Murphy's, to have those take and bake pizzas, they aren't coming in how they once were. And then to top it all off, they still need to implement a consistent point of sale system across all of their units. This is something they haven't been doing. And this is something that you and I have been talking about for quite some time with the likes of Wendy's and other QSRs and that data security is a very important thing. And they still have not implemented one point of sale system system wide as of yet but this is something they'll look forward to in 2017 and then lastly their last strategy here to boost foot traffic is to get 95% of their store base franchised out by year 2020 so they have a lot of opportunities on the likes of Texas Arkansas Missouri and Florida is to sell off these company owned locations and they said this was really going to help boost these average unit numbers because they were hoping that the franchise will take personal ownership of these locations. Obviously, they're still going to receive a royalty annuity, but this is something that they really have not shied away from. And they said this is the core of their business is relying on the franchisee to run these locations and to better market them in their respective locations. And when you were talking, Leighton, about all their competitive pressures, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is not only are they dealing against frozen pizza companies and traditional pizza QSRs, but also grocerants and grocery stores that offer similar take-and-bake concepts. For example, Walmart and Walmart neighborhood markets have rolled out a similar product in most of their stores. Aldi has done the same thing. You look at a store like Whole Foods, obviously they include pizza in their grocerant concept. And finally, you get a grocery like HEB, which is very popular in southern Texas, and they do the same 
same thing where they make the pizza in the store. It's refrigerated pizza and you can take it home and bake it. Additionally, we've talked even on Food Focus about how pizza is beginning to be folded into the convenience store concepts that we're seeing from Quick Trip and the QT Kitchens and also from Casey's General Stores. Both of those outlets want to increase their market share over the next year and have expansion plans in place. So all of this providing tough headwinds. Their stock, although we don't discuss such matters frequently on the Food Focus, currently at $4.48 per share. They were as high as $21 in June of 2015. So tough times, at least in terms of market trading, for Papa Murphy's stock symbol FRSH. Well, we move to another pizza operator, and this is Rave Pizza, which is Pi Five's franchise operator and also the operator of Pizza Inn. They've announced a new CEO that is focused on growing sales after the company had a worse than average, I think you could fairly say, 2016. In fact, they came in at number two in terms of our least performing food-related businesses in 2016. And part of that was because of double-digit same-store sales shrinkage at Pi 5. Pizza Inn performed a little bit better in terms of same-store sales, but their same-store sales were still negative. Their new CEO is Scott Crane. For those that follow the food industry regularly, he was the former CEO of Smashburger, had left that company last April, but he helped to grow Smashburger into a very competitive concept Amidst the trees and the likes of Five Guys, Smashburger has grown now to over 360 locations. Scott Crane was a big part of that, and he hopes to grow Pi Five's concept in the United States in the same way. But first, he's got to make sure they're operationally sound on the restaurant level. Yeah, absolutely. And you and I were talking before airing this podcast that Pi Five had an opportunity to grow beyond 100 locations in 2016. They failed to meet that goal. Pi5 only currently has 93 locations. So this really speaks to the idea that franchisees became a little worried about the franchise. And this really ties into the fact, as you mentioned, that their same-store sales haven't been performing as the company had expected. So you can't really grow a franchise without strong sales and a strong concept behind it. And so you see that this latest quarter, first quarter fiscal 2017, these results were from November. They had a net loss of $0.6 million, but this was actually $0.3 million greater than the same quarter prior years. So this company is really hemorrhaging cash. And when you're coming in with same-store sales numbers of negative 1.1% for Pizza Inn and a decline year-over-year year of about 4%, when you're coming in at average weekly sales declines of about 4% year-over-year, this is not a good signal for the company. But back to their new CEO, Scott Crane. Scott Crane has decades worth of experience in the QSRN industries. So if someone's going to bring life back into this company, it is going to be Scott Crane. And a number of strategies he mentioned here through an interview with Nations Restaurant News really had an eye-opening effect on me, at least. He mentioned that they're not really going to be focused on expanding the Pi 5 locations until they get them running operationally at a better level. So some of the things he mentioned were expanding the number of locations that have drive throughs He said that only one current Pi 5 locations have a drive through as of now. And then also, he said, another piece of low-hanging fruit 
was the idea that they need better ingredients. So they're looking at more innovation with their products and they want better ingredients. They want this to be a differentiator going forward because they have a lot of competitors now in this space. We talk a lot about Pizzeria Locale and Mod Pizza. And these are companies that really have focused on their ingredients as of late. But right now, Scott Crane is saying all the right things, saying that basically they need to make these stores have increased revenues going forward if they want to expand the number of locations they have with this new franchise. Yeah, they have got to focus on individual store profitability and boosting individual store locations. You know, we mentioned Mod Pizza. They've got over 150 locations. Blaze Pizza started in 2011. They have 175 locations. Both of those companies have strong stands on the West Coast. Pyology Pizzeria grew 67% in terms of their location base over this last year. And that's even before we get to other pizza companies like Pizzeria Locale that you mentioned and also the likes of Pizza Rev, which is backed by Buffalo Wild Wings. They've got massive backers there, so they've got growth potential. And for Pi 5, they may well have already missed the boat here in the fast casual pizza industry because you look at the explosive growth from Blaze and Mod and the others here, you look at growth that's also not where Pi 5 wants it to be at this point. And then the existing stores that are open are shrinking in sales after being open only one to two years. So this is a dangerous look for the company. We talk about Pizza Inn. They are relatively stable. And I don't think Scott Crane talked too much in this interview about needing to reform Pizza Inn or anything like that. They are relatively stable. They've got decent market share in the markets they exist. They have kind of a sit-down and buffet-style pizza restaurant that competes with the likes of CC's, you could call it. That being said, Pi 5 is where Rave Restaurant Group is going to hang their hat, it appears, over the next few years. And if they can't turn things around and bring in more revenue from their operators and from their franchisees, they're going to be in for a world of hurt. As it is, their stock has already fallen precipitously over the last couple of years, especially during the last six months as their same-store sales saw double-digit decreases. And it's going to be up to Crane and others in the front office to try and turn this concept around. We talk about differentiation and how difficult it is for Papa Murphy's now to differentiate themselves. When you look at Blaze, when you look at Mod, when you look at Pyology, you look at these other chains, you see that they all have one aspect or another that puts them over the rest. But Pi 5 isn't differentiating on speed they're not differentiating on quality of ingredients so they have to do something to make themselves stand out and maybe it is jumping more into the advertising realm going above and beyond the whole five minute concept to say that we have quality ingredients or we can get you out faster or our pizzas taste better but they have to do something other than just saying we can get you in and out in five minutes because now there's umpteen other chains that do the exact same thing on Rave Pizza's press release page, I was able to look through and really there are some positive drivers for change, at least before this announcement of Scott Crane becoming their CEO last week. But you look through these press releases and you're saying that Rave Pizza announced a $3 million capital raise. And this was back on December 21st. And then on December 13th, they announced a new online ordering platform. And this is something that Scott Crane actually had alluded to saying that this was actually part of their future strategy with these new 
offerings, not only the drive-through, but then also delivery, which really ties in to what the mobile platform is going to be offering their consumers. So this isn't all bad for the company. And you can see that a lot of preparations were put in place after management was going to be taking over in 2017 with a new strategy. So I think there is an opportunity here. But as you said, they are a little bit behind the curve as they have a lot of competition in this space now. And you see it reflective in their stock. Not a lot of positivity with their shareholders. Their shares are down about 60% in the last year. Year, and the share price is at four-year lows. But again, they have put in place an existing platform that they can expand on, and that $3 million capital raise from existing shareholders should help give them the proper capital they need to expand their locations and implement some of this new strategy that they've been talking about. Well, with that, we move on to our last story of the Food Focus podcast. This Tuesday, a state bill was introduced in Alaska that, if passed, would allow the sale of raw milk to consumers and to the public school districts in the state of Alaska. The Alaska legislature was called into session this Tuesday in the Capitol. They discussed the proposed bill, House Bill 46, and it was a bill discussing the idea that Raw milk could be sold to consumers through retail outlets in the state, but it's going to be debated and discussed until April 15th when lawmakers in Alaska have to decide on it. But this was really an interesting story, Trent, because a lot of states, I wasn't really aware of this, but a lot of states already do allow the sale of raw milk through retail outlets and then also the sale of raw milk by way of the farmers producing it as well. So I didn't realize that over half of the states actually had made it legal to sell raw milk. A lot of regulators are warning that this isn't really good public policy and that there are a lot of safety concerns to go along with raw milk sales. Raw milk is one of those things that is not quite as hot button a topic as, say, vaccinations are, but it is something that a lot of people have a lot of different takes on. If you look at the CDC, they say, as well as the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation says that raw milk might contain harmful bacteria. Their concerns are E. coli and salmonella, among others. And this is something that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the CDC are concerned with. When you delve into the numbers, the numbers can be a little misleading here in there because the numbers aren't individually classified in terms of outbreaks of these diseases and the connection to raw milk because some of the connection is to cheese that is made with raw milk or raw cheese. So the numbers kind of get combined, but it looks as though there is a 9 to 20 times higher rate of potential foodborne pathogens in raw milk as compared to pasteurized milk. When you consider how few outbreaks there are involving pasteurized milk, this number is actually pretty slim. So while it's not as dangerous as one might assume given those type of numbers, there still is a higher rate of foodborne illness associated with raw milk. It's nowhere near the rate of foodborne illness that you see with things like vegetables or nuts or meat or poultry or basically most other items that you get that aren't shelf stable in the grocery store. You talked about 11 states. They allow raw milk to be sold in any retail store 
sure. These states are Arizona, California, Connecticut, Maine, Idaho, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Washington. So you have some West Coast states and some East Coast states, but not a lot of states in between, not a lot of states in the Midwest. There are 17 states that allow raw milk sales, but only directly from the farm to the consumer. So if you're a consumer wanting to drink raw milk, you have to go to the farm to purchase it. So that's a lot of states falling into that category. 20 states ban raw milk sales under any circumstance. And you could make the argument on one side of things and say, well, if raw milk is more dangerous than pasteurized milk, then perhaps it shouldn't be sold at all. But the argument to be made for raw milk has to do with vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and also cultures. A lot of people get behind the active cultures now in things like yogurt, for example. But there is also some evidence out there that suggests that pasteurization kills off a little bit of the vitamin and mineral content of milk, as well as some of the essential fatty acids in terms of reduction. And research has shown a decrease in things like copper and iron in milk after heat treatment, such as pasteurization. So this would be the argument for raw milk here. This bill, as you mentioned, House Bill 46, would allow cities, states, and school districts in Alaska to purchase raw milk so long as the price isn't 7% higher of the conventional price of milk coming from other states. So the idea behind this bill, regardless of how you feel health-wise about raw milk, is to try and encourage some growth, some development in the milk production industry. Usually less regulation means a bolstering of this industry, although not always the case. But it seems like that's what they're trying to do here, and they're even opening it up for school districts to purchase this raw milk as long as it's not cost prohibitive. Yeah, and this was one of the things that was really outlined well by Representative Jaron Tarr, who had actually been the one to introduce House Bill 46. But within this bill, Trent, there is a lot to look at. You mentioned some very good points here as far as how milk that is pasteurized may reduce the amount of nutritional benefits that you would see in ordinary raw milk. But there is a lot of economic benefit to be outlined here. And I think this is something that Tar really is going to be having to debate and convince the other legislators in the next few months with. So you're looking at a lot less regulation, which typically means more milk production. And this was something that, again, was outlined in that they have a lot of struggling local dairy businesses there in Alaska. So they really want to boost production and give an infusion of business. And then also you have to look at if there's more milk on the market, it's going to help the consumer. You're looking at eventually, in theory, less prices for the consumer. And if school districts are paying less, that means less of a tax burden as well. So people are going to be paying less in taxes, or at least school districts are going to be lessening their expenditures. And we all know that states around the U.S. are struggling with school district payouts as of now. But a lot could be said with the economic benefits with this raw milk. And you look at all the other states that currently have it in place, not a lot of problems are occurring. It really is in their favor to use these other states as precedent to say, listen, Listen, raw milk sales, if regulated correctly, are done safely and save consumers money and help the local businesses in that area. So I think this is a win-win potentially if done right and if House Bill 46 passes. 
far be it for us to say whether or not raw milk is better than pasteurized milk or vice versa. There are obviously benefits and disadvantages to each version, but I think it's interesting how much milk has become a hot-button topic over the past few weeks. Uh, just three weeks ago, some people in Congress were saying here in the United States that they want to look at relabeling things like almond and soy milk because it's not true milk, that it doesn't come from a cow. And then also you have the issue of low milk prices, threatening family farms and family dairies, and that's been happening on a consistent basis as we see food deflation. And then just this week, we see settlement of a class action lawsuit that was filed in 2011 that accused the National Milk Producers Federation of a nationwide price-fixing conspiracy. They just reached a $52 million settlement. The National Milk Producers Federation has not admitted wrongdoing in this circumstance, but the idea behind the price-fixing ordeal was that many dairy producers were actually slaughtering dairy cows before their usefulness essentially had been completed and that artificially inflated prices. Again, that's not something that the group, the National Milk Producers Federation, has admitted to. They deny wrongdoing here, but it's a $52 million settlement and it actually affects 15 states, including some states in the Midwest and the District of Columbia, who have made milk purchases since 2003. Those consumers may be eligible for the settlement money and people are encouraged to go to www.botmilk.com com, which is just kind of a bizarre circumstance here. We don't talk about that type of thing very often, but milk has been in the news a lot lately. Well, we close out this version of the Food Focus podcast as we do every week, as we tell you something that we tried from the world of food that is new or different. And Leighton, as always, we begin with you. Yeah, so this is actually something that I haven't tried yet and something that isn't available to consumers, but I have to mention it because it involves my favorite restaurant chain, and that is Chipotle. And so rumors came about again after rumors had first started in October of a dessert that is being tested at Chipotle. So Chipotle had announced last week, or at least their CMO had announced some teasing details of the dessert, and they said that they've been testing a dessert and that it's going to include only one new ingredient for the chain, basically saying that they have everything they need to make a dessert already in their individual locations and that they're only going to include one new ingredient. And really, that has me scratching my head a little bit because I am curious as to what it's going to be. A lot of rumors are saying that it's going to be dairy-based, but keep in mind, Chipotle is a company that really prides themselves on the ingredients in in their stores, in their individual restaurants. They are all natural, now non-GMO as of 2016. And so I would assume the dessert has to be within the confines of these own company rules. Most QSRs use a third-party provider when offering certain desserts. They don't often make them at the restaurant or source them by themselves. But this is actually going to be a different stance. Chipotle is taking a different strategy for their dessert. So I am extremely curious. And as soon as it hits the market, I'm going to try it. And again, with the focus on the ingredients that Chipotle has, they can't really go wrong with this. The only thing they really have to be focused on is food safety. And again, they've implemented measures in the second, third, and fourth quarters to really ensure the food safety is a priority in 2017. But with this announcement last week by their CMO, Mark Crumpacker, they said that coming as soon as spring 2017 is when they'll release this dessert. And it's actually going to be unclear as to whether it's going to be in a pilot market 
or if it's going to be a nationwide rollout. But one thing is clear, they will be unveiling their first ever dessert. You go through some of the requirements. I'm trying to think of what they might have on hand to make a dessert out of, perhaps rice. I know a lot of people are now making dessert out of avocados as well. So a lot to keep in mind. As you mentioned, a lot of QSRs and fast casual restaurants outsource their dessert creation. And that comes because oftentimes it is costly and it takes up a lot of space in the back kitchen to manufacture desserts there on site. It is much easier to get them in pre-made. So I'm anxious to see what Chipotle does in this regard. My visit to a restaurant recently was motivated more out of concern for the long-term health of said restaurant as I went to a Johnny Carino's recently. Part of the reason I did is because the restaurant group that owns Johnny Carino's fired up filed for bankruptcy earlier in 2016 and it looks like a lot of the Johnny Carino stores are being sold to a real estate firm so I wanted to go ahead and visit a Johnny Carino's for one last time before many of the stores potentially close down. I had one of their family style dishes and went with some friends of mine and tried out their spicy shrimp and chicken. Now this is kind of interesting because I'm going to tell the listeners about it when it may not be available for too much longer but honestly the portion size was a little bit small for family size. I think it was probably enough for two people to eat but in no regards a family of four. Price point was about $34 for this platter of spicy shrimp and chicken. The food itself was fine but it just didn't. We talk about differentiation. It didn't differentiate itself on a higher level and justify that price point. Interesting thing about Johnny Carino's in the bankruptcy filing that Fired Up made, they blamed in part the Affordable Care Act for the reasons that they had higher than expected costs. But ultimately, I think it goes beyond just the Affordable Care Act. When you look, a number of stores had actually increased their top line revenue, but there's just some disconnect between top line and bottom line revenue that goes above and beyond the Affordable Care Act because every restaurant now has to deal with that. They also blamed low oil prices, which would make sense for their Texas locations perhaps, but they have locations farther out than Texas. So although low oil prices have depressed the economy in some areas in Texas where Johnny Carino's is located, it hasn't really dampened the economy in additional areas. So very interesting that they use those two excuses as they file for bankruptcy. And I'm anxious to see if any Johnny Carino's remain independently open or if the real estate firm that's seeking to bid and buy many of the Johnny Carino stores ends up closing those locations and using them simply for real estate. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. Make sure and follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus and check us out on the Retail Focus podcast coming up later this week where we discuss JCPenney and their new Nike store in-store concept. For Leighton, I'm Trent. So long until next time. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.